Have you ever wondered how the heck people actually go about acquiring a business? Well, you're in the right place. Hey, I'm Jason Andrew, Chartered Accountant, Business Owner, and Financial Voyeurist, and this is Stark Naked Numbers. It's the podcast that strips down the numbers of business, investing, and wealth creation to help you become a better entrepreneur, an investor, and ultimately build your net worth. In today's episode, we're going to break down the step-by-step process of actually buying a business. Whether you're a seasoned investor or considering your first venture into business ownership, this episode will have something for you. I've bought real estate, public stocks, even cars, but buying a business is a completely different process. The culture of how a deal is done is different because there's a lot more involved. The stakes are much higher. So if you're interested in buying a business and want to learn more about the language, the culture and process of how it works, then this episode is for you. Now, most people who become business owners, uh, CEOs, usually come with a set of attributes, right? You're great at sales, product, maybe marketing or finance. But what you're not good at is the stuff you do once in a while, like raising capital, or in this case, mergers and acquisitions. These are large one-off transactions that are very important and expensive. You don't want to get them wrong, but you also don't have the reps in doing it. In fact, unless you work in investment banking, an active family office, or private equity, gaining reps in M&A is extremely rare. What can make it even more complex is that when it comes to buying a small business, the people you buy from are usually like you, right? They've also really bought or sold businesses. Do you remember having to learn the waltz for your wedding day? It's basically that, the blind leading the blind. And so this is why understanding the principles of business acquisitions can give you a slight edge. If you're informed of the process and you have a good idea of how to think about structuring, you can manage your risk because investing is fundamentally about risk management. How do I get what I want and protect my downside? Okay, so at this point, I'm going to offer a short guide on the business buying process. Uh, Now, this process is by no means comprehensive and is absolutely not a substitute for getting professional help, (laughs) but it'll give you the foundations of how it works in real life. Now, I will caveat that I'm not going to unpack what I personally look for in a business. Maybe we can explore that in a different episode, but rather I'll unpack what happens next once you've found one, because how you buy the business is just as important as what business you buy. There are five key phases of the business buying process, right? So in this point, I'm going to go through them step by step. So the first phase is understanding the business, right? This is you, um, you know, talking to the seller, getting an understanding of what you're actually buying. The second is submitting an offer, and we submit an offer through what's called a term sheet or a LOI, a letter of intent. The third phase is due diligence, and this is when you go in and basically kick the tires to to make sure everything that you think is going on in the business is what is actually happening in the business. The fourth phase is completion, and this is you actually completing the acquisition. And then the fifth process, which is typically uh, underappreciated, is post-completion. This is the stuff you do after the signing of the documents. In the first phase is you getting familiar with the business, right? So I'm going to assume that you've already found the business that you're interested in buying, whether that's a you know an e-commerce business, maybe that's a laundromat, maybe that's a car wash, whatever that is, you've kind of identified already what business you want to buy. Now, the first phase is you want to have lots of discussions with the company owners, right? Really, you're trying to get into their mindset of a few things. The first one is you want to understand what is the motivation behind their sale. Put yourself in their shoes. Why are they selling this business? Is it because they're tired of 
how it's running, maybe they're looking to retire, they're maybe they're bored of the thing and want to move on to the next thing. Uh, you really want to understand the motivations behind the sale because that gives you an insight into how you can potentially get into the price or negotiate structure around that as well, which I'll get to later in this pod. The other thing you really want to do is understand this particular business and why it's different or unique or differentiate at least relative to the other businesses within the same industry. I like to start with a thing called the Porter's Five Forces model. Basically, it's a strategy canvas that helps you understand the fundamentals you need to analyze an industry's weakness, strengths, opportunities, etc. Basically, it's like a similar to a SWOT analysis, but also it applies it contextually to the actual business and, and the landscape that you're competing in. First off, get as much learning and insight from the sellers as you can. You really want to get deep into their psychology, understand their motivations so so you can help to structure the deal, which is where I'm going to spend most of today's session of. So the second phase is actually submitting an offer. In Australia, there's a few terms used by lawyers to describe an offer. The most common term used is a term sheet, or another term used is a letter of intent, or LOI. That's more of an American term. Another term thrown around is a non-binding indicative offer. So all of these things are basically the same thing. All it is is essentially it's a non-binding legal document, which is drafted by a lawyer. Um, your lawyer, in this instance, the buyer will typically draft this, which essentially presents the terms of the offer, right? So this is you making an offer to the seller. Now, what you want to cover off is quite comprehensive. And my advice is you want to be as detailed as possible in this offer process, because these are the foundations of the offer. You want to kind of address all the big upfront issues right at the front in this LOI process, because when you get to the actual drafting of the legal contract, that becomes secondary because you've already addressed the big ticket items, right? So you, you spend less time fighting over small nuances later in the piece, which you will do with it anyway. But if you address all the big items up front, my experience is you waste less money on legal fees, essentially, uh, because lawyers like to rack up <laughs> big invoices in, in M&A particularly. In the LOI, we're going to use LOI, but yeah, it can be replaced with a MBIO or a term sheet. Essentially, what you want to address is a few key issues, right? The first one is the price. Now, a couple of ways you can structure price. Usually it can be a fixed amount. It's like, oh, I'm going to buy this car wash for X amount of dollars. You use $5 million in instance, and that will become a, a fixed number. Now, sometimes that number can be floating, right? And when I say floating, it could be based, based on a multiple of EBIT. Now, when you're making an offer, usually you have been given financials, so you can get an understanding of how much you'd offer to, to buy the business. But as you know, a lot of the financials given by sellers aren't completely accurate. There might be some things hiding in the accounts. There might be some normalization adjustments that need to be made. So why offering a fixed price can work against you is because if you find elements in the due diligence process, which have adjusted the, the profit expectations of the business or what the numbers are telling you, well, that obviously has an impact on price. And if you've already kind of conceptually agree on the price, well, then that, that could be a deal breaker later on. So an alternative to that is actually offering a multiple of profit. So the offer might be, we will offer three times trailing um, earnings before interest and tax or something like that, right? Or you basically offer the multiple multiplied by whatever the normalized profit ends up being once you've conducted your due diligence process. And that allows it for the buyer to be keep it more flexible. In the event that you do find normalization adjustments in the accounts, you can essentially lower the price and protect that risk in the offer. I will actually caveat that this process, this LOI process is actually non-binding. Everything you put in this offer is is not bound. It, it's like nothing's legally binding. It's it's more of an offer. Usually there's a, a time frame around it. So it might expire in 60 days. Whatever you write is not definitive. It's all um, here is my high level offer. 
which is a bit different to buying a house. Like if you've ever bought real estate, usually the offer you put in is, is basically the contract where you're essentially committed to the price that you're putting forward and you're actually paying your deposit at the same time. So you're kind of locked into that deal and the way to get out of it is subject to finance or building pest inspections, et cetera. M&A or buying business is actually the reverse process. You don't put any money down often. There's no deposit, a railing deposit, sorry. And everything you put forward at the beginning is non-binding. So you're actually bound to anything that you put forward by nature because you might find risks or if I might find issues in the due diligence process, which changes the offer, which is actually pretty common. The next thing you want to understand is whether you're buying the shares in the company or you're buying the assets of the business. The difference between the two from a buyer's perspective is whether you can actually buy the shares, right? So it is quite common for a lot of businesses to trade out of a structure that is not the company. You may come across businesses that are trading out of a a discretionary trust or a family trust structure. Maybe they're trading out of partnership structure. So because of that, there are no actual shares for you to buy. So in, in this instance, you can't do a share sale because there are no shares for you to buy. Now, in that instance, you, you have to buy the assets. From a buyer's perspective, buying the assets of a business rather than the shares has pros and cons. The, the biggest pro is because of the risk, right? So when you buy the shares of a company, you are essentially buying the history and the legacy of that business as well. For a lot of businesses that have been around for a while, there may be some skeletons in the closet. There could be some tax gremlins hiding in the background that could be exposed via an audit with the ATO. There could be some legal disputes in the background that you're not fully aware of. And when you buy the shares, you essentially take control or take ownership of all those potential liabilities as well. Now, there are ways to protect yourself against those, which I'll talk to later in the piece, but essentially you're buying the history of the business and so you're buying that risk, which is why a lot of people shy away from buying shares in companies because of that inherent risk. From a seller's perspective, they're usually incentivized to do a share sale because mainly of tax benefits. I won't go into this in great detail, but basically for most small business owners, if you're selling the shares in your company rather than the assets, there are it opens up more opportunity for capital gains tax concessions or small business tax concessions that could be available to the sellers, which typically makes it more favorable for sellers to sell shares rather than selling assets. If you have the choice, um, it really is circumstantial. Another thing why you may want to buy the shares in a company as a buyer, as opposed to the assets is customer contracts. So you essentially just, nothing changes. Like operationally, you just kind of have a new owner and everything's Great, <laughs> hopefully. Uh, but if you're buying the assets, what you need to do, because you're changing the legal entity of the business, you actually need to go through the process of renewing all of the existing contracts, going towards suppliers, setting up new supplier agreements, etc. So there's a lot more admin and there's a lot more transition risk involved in an asset purchase rather than a share purchase, which is one of the operational headaches of doing an asset purchase because you're essentially having to sh- change everything at once. And as soon as your customers or your suppliers know there's a new owner, hey, it might trigger some events where they think, oh, you know, uh, some customers might be thinking, hey, I was looking to change my service provider anyway. Maybe this is a good opportunity with a new owner. Maybe this is a new opportunity for me to to find someone else. So again, it creates friction. It can create a level of friction in the acquisition process, which can be avoided through a share purchase rather than an asset purchase. That's that's one to think about. The other component you need to think about is how to deal with working capital. And this is kind of tied into the price as well. So working capital is basically all of the balance sheet stuff 
that comes after once you've negotiated a price. So working capital in summary talks about your inventory. If you're if you're a manufacturing or a product-based business, accounts receivable, your debtors and accounts payable. They're typically the main things. So if you're buying the company or the shares in this instance, you inherently take all that working capital and Typically, what that means is you need to identify an appropriate level of working capital that you're buying with the business. There's there's different ways of calculating that that working capital average or what's called a working capital target or a peak in in M and A language. But basically, what you're trying to do is understand what is the what is the normal level of working capital required to operate this business. So on day one, when I become the new owner, I won't run out of cash immediately, right? I've, I've got inventory in the warehouse that I can sell. I've got debtors I can collect to turn into cash. So I'm not having to add more money into the business to essentially keep it running. If you're doing an asset purchase, you may not decide to buy some of the working capital. You may just buy the goodwill or in this sense, the, the business assets. Maybe you'll buy some inventory, but maybe the debtors will stay with the sellers. So in this instance, this is a really important consideration because it means that you'll need to stump up more cash to fund the day-to-day operations of the business. In my experience, not addressing working capital mechanisms right at the start often breaks deals. So a lot of people get obsessed with price and getting the price right, but a lot of people don't put the same level of detailed thought into what is a working capital adjustment or what's the working capital I'm buying. Because it is quite complex for the average person who doesn't quite understand accounting or finance, particularly sellers, right? A lot of sellers in the small business space aren't really across the numbers at this level. And so you'll grow in the price and then at the end, actually, well, you need to now pay us for this working capital because it was lower or higher than the peak. You know, some people who are either unsophisticated or don't really understand or they're poorly advised from, from in the transaction, they have no idea what the hell is going on there. It's like, wait, you're, you said that you're going to give me $5 million for this car wash. And now you're saying that you're only going to give me $4.8 million because there's some working capital thing of $200,000. Like what's going on here? Are you trying to rob me? Like what's, what's going on? And so it usually actually falls apart. Um, working capital is really underappreciated and under discussed. And I think that I could probably do a whole entire episode about <laughs> working capital adjustments, which may not even help because it's quite complex or can be quite complex. This is a really important point. You really want to address working capital at the beginning as well. And, and usually that will be driven off the share of those asset sale predicament. We spoke about the price. We spoke about the structure, i.e. the share sale versus asset sale. And we spoke about how you might deal with working capital. The next one is exclusivity. Uh, exclusivity is, hey, if I'm going to you know make it off this business, I want to make sure that you're not talking to anyone else in this process. I want exclusivity over me buying this business. And usually that exclusivity is a time period. It could be 90 days. It could be 180 days. It really is quite flexible. But basically it means that the seller can't talk to anyone else about selling their business. They're locked in with you. And that, that's how as a buyer, you get confidence that you've got dibs on the deal, basically. The other component is about deal structuring. So I'm going to spend a lot of podcasts talking about the structure of the deal and, and why that's actually probably more important than the price that you end up negotiating, right? So there's a famous saying, I don't know who coined it, but there's this famous kind of saying that floats around in M&A circles, which is this, name your price, I'll set the terms, but you can't have both. So in this instance, when you're negotiating with anyone, most people will have an idea of how much they want to sell their business for, right? Let's just say in this car wash example, what we're using, the seller said, I want to sell my car wash for $5 million. And you'll say, okay, cool. You could probably make that work based on the numbers, but if you've named the price, I'm going to set the terms of that price and I'll get into that detail right now. 
this would be a quick intro on, on deal structuring. Now, I think structuring a deal is, is typically for M&A veterans. They know that structuring a deal is just as important as negotiating on the price. And for a lot of first timers, a lot of people, I think the, the trap, and I fell into this trap as well with the recent deal that, that we did. Uh, we got very obsessed over the price, but actually we got caught at the end and, and we should have structured it more appropriately for the deal because it would have helped cap our downside a bit more. But overall structuring is great because it can help align incentives between the buyers and sellers. So as a buyer, it helps you to manage your risk better, potentially reduce upfront cash outlay that's required in the business. And so it can work in your favor, but the risk with it is that you want to keep it really simple, right? Because complexity kills deals. There's two things that kill deals, complexity and time. Time is the biggest killer of deals. Complexity creates time, right? More complex something is, longer it takes to negotiate a few things out. And people get bored, tired, and just give up, right? So you want to keep deal structures as simple as possible, but still in a way that helps protect you as the buyer. Okay, so let's dive into the three most common forms of deal structuring. So the first one is an earnout. An earnout is essentially money that's paid contingent on setting specified objectives. Now, the objectives could be numerically based, like, hey, um, future revenue growth, or maybe hitting a gross profit target or, or, a, or an EBITDA target, or they could be qualitative based on renewal of a customer contract. So let's use this example in my car wash scenario. So let's just say that we've agreed to buy this car wash for $5 million. Now, the $5 million we've established because let's say that every every year the business has been generating $1 million of EBITDA, which is my profit. So I'm, I've valued this business at five times historical profit. So being profit was a million dollars, I'm going to times it by five, which will be, that's how I come up for the purchase price of $5 million. So if the seller's happy with that, as a buyer, I'm, I'm probably okay to pay you that. But this is the thing, right? So the, the purchase price they, they came up with was $5 million, but that is contingent on the business continuing to generate a million dollars of EBITDA every year going forward. What might happen is that, hey, next year, um, I want to kind of guarantee that I will that the business will still make a million dollars of profit. I still want the owner, the current owner or the seller to be kind of involved to hand the business over. I don't want them one day, one of us, you know, shaking hands and, and him selling, that he just walks away and goes down, disappears to Bali forever. I need someone to hand over the business. I want to make sure that they're there to properly transition operations, uh, make sure the key customers don't leave, like kind of do all the things you would expect in the handover of anything that you buy. I want to make sure they're hanging around essentially. So an earnout is a really good mechanism to basically tie the seller in for a period to ensure that they're around to help transition the business essentially. And basically what an earnout means is that you don't pay them all the money up front. So of that $5 million, I might say, cool, I'm going to pay you $3 million now, cash up front. So you've got $3 million, they'll hit my bank account when we sign contracts. But the $2 million, I'm going to defer that over two years. So I'll pay you a million dollars in 12 months time. And then we're going to pay you another million dollars in 24 months time. But to achieve that $2 million or the million dollars plus million dollars, you need to hit certain, the business needs to hit certain financial thresholds. For example, I need to make sure that revenue is still stable. So I need to make sure that the revenue hits these targets, which we establish. Um, they're consistent with the previous years. Or I want to make sure that the business still continues to generate a million dollars a year of profit. Or it could be, so they're financial um, earn out targets. Or it could be non-financial, like, hey, you'll get those million dollars. But as you know, most of this business relies on one really big contract. Uh, we have this uh, rental car company that puts all their fleet through our car wash. And that revenue alone is $400,000 of revenue a year, right? I really want that customer hanging around as a new owner. So I will pay you the $2 million of earn out if you can convince or confirm that the 
big customer continues to sign up with us, right? So this is an example of a non-financial mechanism to to design and earn out around capital downside, right? So again, this is all about risk mitigation. The risk with not having an earn out is that you pay the $5 million up front to the seller and then they just disappear. And then what happens? You know, the business is transitioned successfully. Your biggest customer disappears and you lose all your revenue and yeah, you're getting a lot less than you paid for. And the worst extent is that you left the keys with someone to help run it and it goes south because yeah, there's just been no transition that you could, could go zero, right? Which is the absolute worst case, worst thing that you can happen. So you want to try and mitigate that through, through a turnout. Yeah, the pros of a turnout is that it shifts some of the risks of future business performance from the buyer to the seller, as we spoke about. The other pro is that there's less cash up front from the buyer. So you're not paying the full $5 million up front to the seller. In this instance, you're only paying three and deferring $2 million later. So you're essentially getting some form of interest-free finance on the acquisition. And uh, the other pro is that the seller can end up actually making more cash with an earnout. So because the earnout is typically, uh, could be tied to performance. So if they hit certain thresholds, if it's structured correctly, that could actually get some upside on the earnout. So actually end up making more than the $5 million because they've grown the business more over that period. Now, the cons of an earnout is that um, earnouts aren't really really super attractive to sellers because firstly, you know, if you've been working in the business for a long time as a seller, the last thing you want to be doing is locked into the business for another two to three years. Like, you know, usually people who have decided to sell their business are like done with it. They're kind of mentally checked out. They just want to move on. The prospect of of staying, hanging around for another two to three years to, to get paid is kind of not really appealing for a lot of folks. So it might be less attractive to the idea. I think the other component of that is they they feel like they don't have control of business as well because once you've essentially handed the keys over to a, a new owner, achieving the earnouts of the set uh, collectively may not be in fully in the seller's control because they're not actually running the business. You've got a new operator, you have a new CEO or a new owner in this instance calling the shots and making decisions which you may not have made as the operator, right? The sellers may feel that they lose control and don't have influence over achieving that earnout, despite a lot of their financial exit money tied up in that process. Now, the third thing I've seen quite frequently is uh, disputes between the buyer and seller on whether earnouts are actually achieved, right? So as an example, a car wash example, let's just say that the earnout was based on the business achieving EBITDA of a million dollars every year for the next two years. How you define EBITDA is quite subjective, uh, as we know. Whether you add back some expenses or include some expenses, maybe the, the, the buyer is investing, decide to invest in more staff to, to improve the customer service. And so how you actually decide whether the business has achieve those earnout targets can be subjective so that that's another risk and i think again in the earnout calculation you need to be quite a little bit more quite specific about what's the yardstick and how do we ensure that the yardstick is firstly measurable really measurable and then secondly um is not subject to financial trickeries <laughs> so I, I think earnouts are appropriately used uh, generally when it's used to to bridge evaluation gap so let's just use that car wash example or let's just say i think the car wash in this instance is worth three million dollars but the seller thinks it's worth five, they won't five. So in this instance, I could say, cool, well, I think it's I think it's worth three. You say it's worth five. For this to be worth five mil, um, the, the future profit needs to be higher than a million dollars. It needs to be $1.5 million a year, for example. So if you can hit, if, if over the next two years, you can hit, you can grow the profit one from one mil profit to 1.5 million profit for those future two years, I'm happy to pay you the $5 million. So immediately the earnout becomes, the seller becomes due to hit a $5 million to get paid the remaining $2 million of the earnout, you need to generate $1.5 million per year of EBITDA, right? So that becomes the earnout target. Essentially, the seller has to work towards that higher price if, if they want it. 
and I think that the the, the second tip on on earnouts is the more objective the target, the better. You really want to make it really objective of how you get to the earnout calculation. We'll talk about the next structure, deal structure tool that I like to use that I've seen is uh, vendor finance or a seller note. A vendor finance or, or a seller note, you can use these terms interchangeably, is this essentially when the seller becomes a lender and effectively lends you money to buy their business. So usually uh, it's interest bearing, um, there's a principal and interest component over time, or in some instances, it's just like a deferred payment. So I say, cool, um, we'll defer a chunk of the money and, and pay you in 12, 24 months time. The pros of the, so actually we're using our car wash example. Let's just say that, hey, we regrow this $5 million car wash um, as the buyer. I'll say, cool, I'll, I'll pay you $4 million of cash up front, but I want a million dollars to be paid later in 12 months time, right? So you essentially bought yourself uh, another million dollars of time to then eventually pay that, that, that money out. And where that can be used is kind of an insurance policy for the buyer. As I'll talk about later, there's a thing called warranty claims. So when I buy a business, there's a set of warranties that I get uh, typically in, in, in the legal contract that it, uh, um, that protects me for, from many wrongdoings or things that might come up that I had no control over that someone may or may know about. So I can actually claim against that future money and protect my downside. In addition to just having a, a, as a risk mitigation, but also some some form of financing, the price of it is that the seller knows exactly when that where what they will earn post the sale compared to an earnout. So again, the earnout is the seller has to work for the deferred money. Where if it's you just been the financing, the seller already knows that they they can guaranteed to get the money. It's just a matter of when. There's no ambiguity. Uh, there's a there's a loan agreement typically for the earnout for the sell note as well. The other pros is as a buyer, it gives you it allows you to have more leverage. So if you're uh, understanding the world of how returns can be manufactured uh, through using debt, the less equity you put up front, the more debt you have. Uh, usually, that's a good thing to help uh, improve those those cash and cash returns. And generally, seller notes are typically cheaper. It's a cheaper cost of capital compared to other forms of debt, right? Because it's usually a friendly parties. Uh, the seller it has very a little interest to take the company if you're not getting paid. Put it that way, <laughs> compared to an external private lender, to an external lender like a bank or a private credit institution, where if you're not getting paid. They've got pretty strict default clauses to to introduce the administrators to to start recovering assets if if they feel that they're not going to get paid uh, their cash. Uh, pros of the sell no model is that with any form of leverage or debt, it can increase risk, right? Because you're putting more debt on the balance sheet or putting more um, poor risk on the business, and that could reduce the flexibility of it as well in slow months where there might might not be as much profit or cash flow in the business. Yeah, might cross hairs with lenders. Uh, so if you're an external lender, for example. And like to say, you're already financing the deal with some external bank debt and they know that there's a seller note involved as well. It could create some complexity about who gets higher rake in, in the event of administration or not being able to repay, et cetera. So it can, it can create some complexity easily the financing of the business. The advantage of having seller note or seller debt or seller financing is the flexibility. So it, you can actually build flexibility clauses within your loan agreement with the seller that is essentially all negotiable. Um, so you can have long grace periods for misrepayments, steps for remedy if there's default. It gives you options to discuss the scenario with the seller upfront. For example, we worked with a uh, a search fund, uh, well, search a searcher a few years ago who, who who bought a business, and the whole almost the whole business was 
funded via a vendor finance. So it was no external capital. Um, basically, the seller of the business had a, a vendor finance for uh, for the acquisition for the, for the searcher. And uh, so the searcher who was design- building the contracts spent a lot of time with the lawyers to, to put quite favorable terms in and what happens if we breach the repayment terms of this seller note, right? And, and what they did was they they said, well, if we default on a, on a repayment, um, firstly, we have to give 30 days notification to them. Day one, they defaulted. They got 30 days to notify the financier. And then once that what they they did then did is give another clause to give thirty days to remedy that. So they essentially bought them two months worth of time to come up with the cash to eventually pay the misrepayment or at least open a dialogue with the seller. And in this instance, worked out quite well because it became quite a, a key key helmet in the in the transaction as the business started to operate. Another tool to add to your tool belt is the seller equity rollover. So. This, in a nutshell, is when the seller of the business takes some equity in your new entity instead of cash. But first, a quick message from our sponsor. Are you tired of traditional accounting firms that only focus on tax and compliance? Looking for a financial partner that can go beyond the numbers and reveal the story those numbers are telling? SBO Financial aren't your typical business accountants. We're your dedicated financial management team, empowering you to take control of your finances and gain clarity and confidence in your business. Sure, it will keep your books in order and file your taxes, but unlike traditional firms, we'll also go beyond financial hygiene to give you the forward-looking insights and strategies you need to grow your cash and profitability. Picture this, a team of chartered accountants, CPAs, bookkeepers, payroll specialists, and financial analysts all working together to help you grow your business. With SBO, you gain access to a collective team of experts and specialists, providing you with proactive advice and analysis. So don't settle for reactive advice. Stop looking backwards and start looking forwards with SBO Financial, your partner in financial management and growth. Visit our website or contact us today for a free financial health check at sbo.financial. Now, so what that means is like, you know, car wash example, let's just say we agree on the price of $5 million. Um, instead of me as the buyer giving the seller $5 million of all cash, the seller might say, hey, I actually trust you that uh, I think you can grow this business better than I can. I want to stay, I want to keep some skin in the game, basically. So instead, how about you pay me $4 million and I'll keep 20% of the business, right? So they'll roll that 20% or, or a million dollars in this instance. Yeah, 20% of $5 million is a million. That million dollar rolls into as, as equity into the new business and then me, I think I've got a new business partner or I've got a business partner. It's not particularly common in typical small business acquisitions, um, like search funds or whatever, but it's pretty very common in, in private equity or um, lower middle market private equity where there might be a roll-up of some sort as an example. So let's just say that I was in the business as a buyer was in, I wanted to roll up some car washes. I would say, hey, I'll, I'll buy I'll buy your car washes, like the platform asset, but hey, come along on the ride. Um, you're an experienced car wash veteran. We need some te- we need your help. Like we need some technical hands on the ground. Um, maybe you'll, you'll have some people in your network which you can help to, to get into this roll-up. Yeah, let's work together. And so the seller might say, cool, well, I want to cash out because I want to de-risk my, my personal life for retire, but also I still want to be involved in the industry somehow. So they might start to roll a million bucks into the big group and then they can help you can work together as business partners to then buy more car washes and, and build a, a car wash conglomerate, which sounds like my wet dream, literally. So the pros of it is, as you as you understand, you become business partners. So it really aligns sellers and buyers. Um, we both own the same business going forward. We're both vested in its success. 
Uh, the other problem is that the seller gets a second bite of the apple. So they get potential to have another large payday. So remember, they get in this instance, he gets paid $4 million up front. But that million dollars that is roll up into the into the new business could be worth 10, 20, a lot more money to maybe 10, 20 million dollars in the future, maybe more into the future as we start to roll up more uh, car washes, list it, take it public, cash out. You know, there's it, keep, it keeps the skin in the game. It could be worth more than the actual upfront money itself, right? The cons is that your seller is now your business partner. And, you know, uh, <laughs> rule of thumb, if you've ever had a bad business partner or you've experienced breaking up with a business partner, you know how that can go really badly if you don't gel with them. Um, so that could be a good thing or a bad thing. It is generally less attractive to sellers uh, because, especially if they're older, not risk averse, you know, they, they just kind of, or they're just jaded by the whole thing, you just want to be done. And, you know, they, they might not be interested. Yeah, so as I said, it's pretty uncommon in small business acquisitions, but pretty common in, in private equity roll-up. So if you are exploring kind of a roll-up or um, yeah, what you consider sell equity, um, a couple of tips. So you want to ensure that the rollover equity is common equity. So it's just the same class as everyone else without voting rights. So they've got no vote as to what how or the dates they, I guess, the board executive running of the company or how you decide to run the company. And outside equity, so if you're raising money from outside investors, that they get preferred equity with funding rights, so they have some influence over the, over the business. You want to always communicate to the seller what you plan to do with the business so they know what to expect as an equity holder. You know, what's the plan? Are you going to sell the thing in 10 years or are we just holding this to, to cash flow dividends? Like, what's, what's the deal? Well, what should I expect as a shareholder of this business? And I think that it's, as I said before, it's really as common strategy used in roll-ups because it's can be quite beneficial to have an insider industry insider as a shareholder as well that can add significant value post-completion, right? So they can help you with complex transitions. They can help you expand the business because of their industry. You can leverage their Rolodex of contacts and relationships. They also might have some ideas that they had to, to evaluate the business, which they could do before because they didn't have the capital or maybe the energy to do so, right? So um, if you have the right person that you could partner with, um, you know, identify a, a rolling of equity is a really great tool to add to your tool belt. But it comes down to the person and the scenario. Okay, so we spent a lot about uh, going over deal structuring. Fundamentally, deal structuring comes back to who gets paid and when, right? It's a really, really important part of thinking about how you might buy a business because you, you can spend a lot of time thinking about price but you should be spending as much, even more important, or sorry, more time spent on how to structure it because I think that is more important than the price itself. If you structure the deal correctly, the price kind becomes secondary because it helps you number one align incentives between both the sellers and the buyers and it helps to de-risk the transaction a great deal. The, the final part, which is typically stressed in the LOI, is post-acquisition. So what do you do with the team? And this is a big a big point, right? So if you're buying a generational business or a, a boomer business, um, it's really important often for the seller that the team stays. Like, you know, the, these they might have a lot of loyal staff that have been with the company for a long time, and it's really important that they, they hang around. And as a buyer, you actually want that as well. You want the team. You're, when, you're, when you buy a business, you're just buying the customer's and you know the, the activities of the business, you actually want people to continue to run it as well because they all all of it. That's 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 an asset. The people are the asset as well. So you really want to keep them <laughs> along for the ride if you can. And so that's really a big contentious uh, discussion, particularly if you're looking to run the business yourself. You know, you might have your own contacts or people that you trust to bring into the business. So you want to make sure that you know are you going to be stepping on toes if you 
introduce a new CMO or a head of product or whatever. So I just want to make sure you typically trust that in the LOI as well. So let's assume that we get this LOI done. We, we both sign what you've, as a buyer, essentially you've got exclusivity now, right? You've got a window of time, 90 days, 120, 180 days to, to be exclusive with the business now. And now this is the time to do your due diligence, which is the third phase of the acquisition process. This is you getting in the business, getting in the weeds and kicking the tires essentially, right? So there are typically four types of due diligence you need to do, at least four. Um, it kind of extends depending on the business or the industry that you're buying, depending on your risk appetite, depending um, of your, or, or your knowledge of the industry, right? So the first one is you a must do, right? This is not a should do it's a must do is financial due diligence, right? I am biased when I say this because one of our companies offers financial due diligence services to buyers of businesses. But you know, you really because a lot of it stems from the finances, right? You want to understand and ensure the financials that were presented to you in the business buying process are real and accurate and not made up. So this is where you engage someone like us or your accountant who specializes in financial due diligence specifically to go in and basically firm up the numbers. They get access to the accounting records and they get access to all the um, you know, the general ledger, tax returns, all that sort of stuff and basically do a bunch of work to analyze the numbers and ensure that the numbers stack up. We've seen a lot of businesses in the last three years, particularly investments by venture capital funds, where the due diligence process was very lax. And we ended up with absolute shit shows of you know, large sophisticated businesses buying startups which with fake customers, fake revenue, fake numbers, and you know, they're all in lawsuits now. Like yeah, if you if you're gonna spend ten million dollars on buying a business, you need to spend the money to make sure what you're buying is real, right? Because uh, yeah, a lot of people like to, to wimp out or cheap out on due diligence, but it's almost insurance, right? You need to make sure what you're buying is real. Says so the financial due diligence. The second is commercial operational. So if you're an industry insider, you might, most of the operators or the buyers will do this themselves. So you'll go in, you kind of look at who's part of the payroll, what's the old chart look like, who are the people on it. I, I want to talk to the staff. I'm going to look at the contracts that this business has. I'm going to look at the equipment, all that sort of stuff. This is all commercial and operational due diligence to make sure that, again, is this business running in the way that I think it is or what has been presented by the sellers? And if it's not, Again, it's a good opportunity for you to understand what upside there is, what, what things can be improved. A really important part of the due diligence process is not only understanding what you're buying, but also what is the opportunity that you're buying, right? What what things can be improved in the process so you can actually start to plan and, and build out a, a playbook uh, because you're fully aware of all the risks and the issues that a business have. I will say that no business is perfect. Like everyone, every business, large or small, has risks and fires. So it's about understanding what are those risks and fires ranking them and and setting out a way to mitigate or eliminate them going forward with a plan, right? And this is, that's, that's essentially your upside as a buyer. The third problem is legal. Again, you, you should do legal due diligence. So particularly if you've got large customer contracts, you've got employees with employment agreements, all that sort of stuff. You want to get lawyers to involve IP, trademarks, get them in, understand, okay, is everything being complied with, uh, with the law or the industry and making sure you're protecting any legal risk uh, that business may have. 
The fourth is usually a more technical element. So if you're buying some form of unique product or um, innovation or code, uh, big in certain software companies, you, you may want to engage a, a technical expert to do some diligence on the code to make sure code's legit or high quality. You want to have a product expert if you're in manufacturing to make sure that what they're selling is of high quality and meets safety standards and all that sort of stuff. So there's, a, there's usually uh, the pressure there. So they're the, the kind of the four key pillars of due diligence. Now that extends into other things like could be HR diligence. I would like engage a HR expert to look at the award rates, contracts and stuff like that. But generally the, 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 the large buckets of, of things that are done in the due diligence process. In terms of the timing, due diligence um, usually takes anywhere from, <laughs> well, can take anywhere from uh, 45 to sometimes a lot longer than that, maybe three or four months. It really depends on how organized the sellers are. Both players are incentivized to get the due diligence process done pretty quickly. General rule of thumb is, you know, 45 to 60 days is an appropriate due diligence window for, for both the buyer and the seller. And I would say that, um, yeah, most sellers don't like the due diligence process because, you know, they're getting asked all these curly questions, which number one, they may not know our issues or number two, they know our issues, but they'd be trying to hide under the rug. <laughs> so uh, yeah, managing that process can be delicate. So it's really important that you engage the right advisors to, to help you through that process. Okay, so once you've done the geologist process and you're actually happy that the numbers stack up and, and whatever, you're happy with the risks that you're, you're, you are, you have a better understanding of what you're buying in terms of the business. The fourth phase is actually getting the, the legal contracts done, right? Now, the legal contract drafting process is actually typically done at the same time as due diligence. So it's usually two prongs. So you'll, you'll engage your lawyers to do the legal due diligence, but at the same time, you'll also get them to start to draft the either the, the business sale agreement or the BSA or the share purchase agreement or the SPA, really depending again if you're doing an asset sale or a share or a share sale. If you're doing a share sale or a share purchase in this instance, it's a share purchase agreement or an SPA. If you're just buying the assets of the business, it's a business sale agreement. So anyway, slight terminology, but basically it's a legal contract which defines all of the uh, details of the business acquisition. Now, as I said really early in the piece, remember how we spoke about the term sheet or the LOI being really, really important that you get that as detailed as possible. Essentially, all the terms that you fill in, in in the term sheet just get kind of replicated and copied into the actual legal document. So this is why it's really important to clear a lot of those things up front because what you don't want to happen is that you, know, you, you pay a lot of these lawyers tens of thousands of dollars to drop, get the first draft of this contract done. You send it to the seller's lawyers and then the seller's lawyers then translate it to their sellers, to their clients, say, hey, are you aware of these things that they put in this contract? They're like, what the hell? No, we didn't talk about some earnout. We didn't talk about this deferred payment thing. Like, what, what the hell? What all this stuff in there? We didn't address any of that. What if that's work capital thing? We didn't talk about any of that sort of stuff. And then that's where it becomes great friction in the negotiation process. You've got lawyers now involved who are charging, you know, <laughs> hundreds of seven thousand dollars an hour, thousands of dollars an hour. You know, making markups in in a in a document, right? You want to avoid that as much as you can, which is why it's really important to to address all of the key issues right at the beginning. So, really, ultimately, it never ends up like this. But ideally, what you're trying to make is that the actual legal contract is more of a formality instead of being a negotiating kind of document, right? Uh, you want to get all the hard stuff, all the hairy stuff up addressed right at the beginning, so that. The legal contract itself is just a formality of just getting the things done. So this is just a, a document representing what we've already discussed. Now, a big part of the legal contract, let's just use the BSA in this instance as a term, is the warranties or reps. So the warranties is the big thing, uh, which you, you'll probably discuss a lot with the with your lawyer and the seller's lawyers about 
what warranties are you having? What indemnities are you having in, in, when you buy this business? What are the assumptions you're making? Uh, one of the big things is, um, you know, making sure that the business, when you're buying, the process of buying the business is that there's no material change or adverse effects of the sellers operating the business. So they don't do anything, any, they don't make any decisions which they would ordinarily do, knowing that they're going to sell the business. We had one example of a business that we bought, which were just before <laughs> the day of completion. The sellers deleted all the emails in the inbox, uh, which was a red flag. <laughs> uh, I don't know why they did that. Obviously, they're trying to hide something, or I, I don't know what they did, but they deleted all the history of the emails, which obviously we needed because we were, we need the history of communications to run the business. And so, yeah, that was a red flag, and we, we made them restate that. And you know, anyway, so that's an example of where um, it, it could create things which you want to protect yourself against, um, and. Secondly, what why the, the warranties are are important is just like you've you know spent a bunch of money buying an iPad from Apple and you know the iPad breaks. There's a warranty that the Apple has, the Apple Store has. Is like, hey, yeah, if it breaks within two years, you can return it and we'll replace it. This is kind of the same mechanism. You want some sort of warranty in the business that if something happens, which the seller knew about, but they didn't tell you about or um, wasn't captured in diligence or whatever, you can claim against that and actually charge them for there's a financial charge for that whatever it costs you to to either fix or indemnify it and this is why having some form of earnout or a deferred payment mechanism in the buy process and that, that deal structuring process means you can claim against that money so it's kind of like a retention that you can claim against that makes it a bit easier to, to recoup that some that, that money as well so that was the legals. If you if you're all happy, you get the you deal with your lawyers over several months. It drags out <laughs> quite often. Uh, you both sign the contract, and that's done. You wire the wire the money, and completion's done. And you think it's all over, but it's not over. Usually, the deal process of getting a deal done um, it's quite stressful. Lots of lots of uh, Zoom calls and meetings with lawyers and sellers and. Lots of argy-bargy. There's a rule of three when it comes to M and A. It's usually the deal will fall over three times before it gets done. You know, both parties will negotiate over one thing and get too caught up and both walk away and then come back again and, you know, work through it. So there's ups and downs of the deal process. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's quite taxing, can be quite taxing. It's on both parties, particularly the sellers, because they're trying to run their business at the same time as, as trying to sell it. Um, and also keep it quiet from all the staff and the market. And so it's just quite a, it can be quite an exhausting process. But once you get to the end and the finish line's there, it doesn't get easier because now as the buyer, you need to run the body thing, right? <laughs> so once you bought the business, you're essentially in the driver's seat and uh, you might have a CEO or it might be yourself operating it. And this is where the post-completion stuff happens. So you might have a big transition plan of uh, you know the things that you want to do to improve the business. From a financial perspective, there are things you might need to deal with from a working capital perspective, doing completion accounts. There's all this other stuff. I won't go into great detail, but my message to you is that buying a business is not like buying a house. Buy a house, you're walking, oh, you know, everything's lovely. Um, in a business, you are now the operator and um, it's just as grueling as buying the business itself. It's like you can't be like this. Finish line of buying businesses is really just very easy. It's actually the easiest phase of the journey. Running the business is actually the hardest part. <laughs> so uh, anyway, that that kind of um, gives you yeah, a quick, quick snapshot. So just to recap on today's pod, the five phases of buying business, there is kind of the first phase of understanding the business, what are you buying? The second phase is submitting an offer through an LOI term sheet. Again, spend a lot of time on the structure of the deal in addition to the price and the terms. So really, really important. Third phase is the due diligence. So you really want to kick the tires, get deep in the weeds to, to make sure um, you know what you're buying, essentially. 
fourth phase is completion. You get the your lawyers, yeah, you do your you do your dance, you sign the docs, and then the last phase is post-completion. Congratulations, now a business owner, now the real work starts. And that's it. Our no-nonsense guide to the ins and outs of buying a business. I hope I've satisfied your curiosity and shed some light on just how these deals actually go down. We've got plenty more episodes coming your way, so make sure you subscribe to Stark Naked Numbers on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcast app of choice. To learn more about the secrets of uncovering your financials, unlocking your cash, and unleashing your profits, visit starknakednumbers.com and follow me on LinkedIn. I'm Jason Andrew, and this has been the Stark Naked Numbers Podcast. Podcast.